today we're going to share together in the Lord's Supper, and we're going to come together as a church family, and we do this once a quarter, and if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to partake and to share with us as we celebrate the gospel of Jesus in this beautiful observance of the Lord's Supper. So I'm going to ask all the children at this point, if you're not with mom and dad, you need to get with mom and dad right now. So if you're not with mom and dad, because we're going to do this together as a family, so all the children, if you could get with your mother and dad. But we have been studying for the past several Sundays, actually nine to be exact, today being the ninth Sunday, about how we might fulfill what God has asked for us in, in uh, starting strong, how we can begin this new life that we have in Christ strong in the Lord. And we have examined specifically Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to an incredible extent, an amount of time, almost seven weeks in that one verse. And upon studying all of that, that, that God has asked of us, I think there are times in, in sharing in the communion, the Lord's Supper, this time of celebration where we know that, that it's important for us to partake and to share and to observe together with a sin-free, confessed-up life, that we often have a tendency to look at ourselves and to feel a little bit discouraged, a little bit distraught, maybe a little bit despondent because we see that the standard is so high that there's no way in the world that we can ever live up to that standard. And so we examine ourselves and wonder, then who is qualified to share in the Lord's Supper? Who of us is without sin? And so we can have two viewpoints in this journey that God has called us to walk. There's the optimistic view and there's the pessimistic view. And I came across a little sort of a little poem that helps us understand some of that. It's a, song, it's a poem about two frogs. And it's entitled here, it's, it's entitled, Hang in There with Persistence. Listen to the, the beautiful poem. It says, two frogs fell into a deep cream bowl. Only one was an optimistic soul. The other took a gloomy view. I shall drown, he cried, and so will you. So with a last despairing cry, he closed his eyes and said, Goodbye. But the other frog, with a merry grin, said, I can't get out, but I won't give in. I'll swim around till my strength is spent. For having tried, I'll die content. And bravely he swam until it could be, it, it could be seen. His struggles began to churn the cream. On top of the butter, at last he stopped, and out of the bowl he happily hopped. What is this moral? It's easily found. If you can't get out, keep swimming around. Well, how many of you would like out of this fallen world that we're living in today? I know I would. But the reality is, as long as we have life, as long as we have breath, we are called to live in a fallen world, and we are fallen creatures, are we not? And because of our fallen world and the fallenness that we deal with and struggle with on a daily basis, we see the standard that's been elevated by these passages and many others, a standard of perfection, a standard of holiness, a standard in which the quality of life is one to live a sin-free life, to be moving and progressing in this aspect that we've identified as a justification that comes through faith in Christ as he sanctifies us, moves us into becoming more and more like Christ. We know down deep inside of this fallen world as we struggle and strain and stress, we can have two viewpoints. We can take the pessimistic viewpoint and we can throw in the towel and walk away, or we can continue to strive and struggle and, and, and fight in order to live godly, holy, sin-free lives, as impossible of a calling and a task that is 
There's really no way out. So we can take the optimistic or the pessimistic view, and I hope that you would take the optimistic view, not the pessimistic view, and just waddle in your sin and your depravity as a Christ follower. It's not what we're called to do. And I'm convinced that in this passage of 1 John chapter 1, we see that there are some Christians that for whatever reason have decided to take the pessimistic view. In, in 1 John 1, 9, which is our key passage today, I want to set the stage for what we're about to talk about in the earlier verses that we see for us in this passage in 1 John 1. Because I'm convinced there are some people that God was addressing to the penmanship of John that for whatever reason had taken a pessimistic view, had decided to throw in the towel and to quit and sort of just a waddle in a sea of their own depravity, recognizing that there's no way in the world they can ever become the, the holy, consecrated vessels that God intended for them to be in Christ. And so they, they just chose to waddle in it. I'm convinced that as they chose to waddle in it and to live in this despairing condition, they sought to cover it up because that's mostly what most of us try to do when we settle for less than God's best, isn't it? We come to church and we want others to believe and to think that we have lived godly, holy, sin-free lives all week long, but the fact is none of us in this auditorium today have lived sin-free, completely godly lives, have we? That's a question. Have we? No. If your neighbor didn't say no, punch him. Because they're guilty of what is happening in this church that God is addressing through the penmanship of John. Notice 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. Not on your screen, I just want to read this. For uh, this is the measure we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's the standard God. Light, no darkness. And if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Here we have people obviously who are claiming one thing and living another. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We're going to see that at the end of our study this morning. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here we have in this passage, I believe, some believers that for whatever reason have decided that they have not sinned against God. They are either living lives of hypocrisy and cover up or they're just living lives that are completely carnal totally dejected, completely depressed, unable to see the power that's theirs in Christ through the Spirit of God living and dwelling in them, and have given up in the fight against sin. And what we need to learn today as we come to 1 John 1, 9, the single passage of our focal point today is that we, when we come to the passage, we meet the standard of God, we will find forgiveness because God is a faithful father and he will forgive those of us who meet the conditions that he lays for us who are in Christ. I think sometimes we have a tendency to think that just because I'm a Christ follower that I don't have any more sin that's in need of cleansing or forgiving. 
But the fact of the matter is that there's not a single perfect Christian that walks the planet that lives their life on a day-to-day basis. And because we came to faith in Christ through repentance, that means we admitted our sin, we asked for forgiveness, we abandoned that sin, that we must then continue, I believe, to live out that process of cleansing, of forgiveness, of repentance every single day, if not every moment of our life. And yet, too often, I think it's the least thing that we do in our journey, in our walk of following Christ. And so God, through John's feminineship, helps us today as we celebrate the Lord's Supper to do so. Having then understood that through the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, we are then to confess. And when we confess, we can receive cleansing. Why? Not because of our faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness because we're not faithful but he is so let's take a look at our first point today and here we see in the text how can I receive complete cleansing from my sin against God number one there is a condition that must be met there is a condition for God's forgiveness and if I meet this condition I have been promised that he will forgive and he will cleanse. Now, we must meet it if we are to receive it. And the choice is virtually ours, is it not? Not his. As we see in the text, he opens up with this beautiful word, if we confess our sin. If describes the condition that God sets. If. It's if we, not he, meets the condition. God has already done everything necessary in order to meet the condition. He did it through Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He met the condition already by sending his one and only son to take upon himself our sin against God and dying in our place. And through faith in him, we can then receive forgiveness. And so as he addresses these believers, he's saying to them that because you have already taken a position of forgiveness at salvation doesn't necessarily mean that you are remain or have remained or continue to be sin-free if we confess. It's interesting that it not only describes the condition, but he defines then who are the guilty party. Who, who's the guilty party in this text? If we Now, the word we is a word in the original language that is together with confess. These we confess is one word, but in the English vocabulary, to help in the understanding of what is being said and what is being described by God through John's penmanship, we need to separate them in the English language, not in the original language. And the word we confess, we who are in need of confessing. And he's pointing to those who are in need. And the ones who are in need are the we. We. You and I are in need of confessing. We who have sinned. If we confess, notice, our sin. A personal pronoun that points to the individual born-again believer in Christ. It's interesting that John, as he is writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has just told the church that no one can claim to have not sinned at all, includes himself in the sinning. We, our, 
In other words, there's no one that is excluded from the condition that God is setting. If we confess our sin, if we do what? If we confess. That word confess means basically four things. It means I agree with God that his standard has been set by God and his standard has been elevated as to the standard by which I must live. Based upon that standard that I agree that God has set, I then admit, God, I have not met the standard. I have fallen short of the standard. I recognize and realize what the standard is. It is Jesus who is perfect, that your law that is perfect. You study that in, in life group today, did you not? And that the law is there to convict of sin and to set the standard of God, a standard by which we cannot live up to no matter how much effort we put forth. We can never live up to the standard of God. And so we must then confess. We, we agree with God the standard's there. We admit that we have fallen short. We have either done what God has said do not do, or we have failed to do what God has asked us to do. And once we admit that we have sinned, we ask for forgiveness. We call it by name what it is, sin. I just don't call it sin. Call it by its name. God, I cussed today. Or God, I... I, I got angry today, or God, I, I committed lust today, or God, I was greedy today, or God, I was selfish today. And we confess the sin by name. And we then must repent of that sin. We must turn from that sin. We must abandon that sin. We must stop doing what we are confessing to God. And until we have repented of that sin, confession has not taken place. I'm convinced that most of our confessing today is the first three. I agree with God that his standard is way up here. I admit that I have missed the standard, and I ask for forgiveness. Now, God, let me keep right on doing the thing that I was doing before, and I'm going to come back and do it all over again. And then I'm going to agree with you that I shouldn't do this, and I'm going to admit that I've done it, I'm going to ask for forgiveness, and go right on and do it again. That's not confession. Confession relies upon a power outside of myself through the Holy Spirit of God that enables me and empowers me, as we've seen in this whole sanctification process, to turn our backs on sin and to say no to its influence and its impact and to seek in the power of the Spirit to reject and to resist doing it again. And once we then confess, that's what he desires from us. We see that he demands honesty and that we must confess our, he calls it what it is, sin. That's a word you don't hear much in the modern day church, the word sin. It's not popular because nobody wants to be told they're sinners. Do you like to be told you're a sinner? Anybody in here? I know I love it. I do. I was getting some instructions back here before we got up here today. and You know, we all love instruction. We all love correction. We all love help. Hey, you're not quite doing it quite the way it needs to be done. And I know about you, but we all have a hard time with that. But the law of the Word of God, as we study in the life group today, comes, convicts us through the power of the Spirit as we read it, that we have sinned against God. We have either done what God has told us not to do, or we have failed to live up to what God has asked us to do. And we have sinned. We have committed an infraction. We have missed the mark. What's the mark? To look like Jesus. To hit the target. To reflect the character and the nature of Christ. And in our attempt, in, in, even in our best effort, we have missed the mark and we have sinned. And because we have sinned, 
we are in need of grace. And aren't you glad that his grace is more than sufficient to cover our sin? But the, God, the Bible says that once we meet God's condition, we can rely upon the certainty of God's forgiveness. There's a, there's a confidence, there's a trust that God who promises to forgive, when we meet these conditions, will do so. And this certainty, this conviction, this confidence doesn't come just sort of out of the air that we just sort of reach for it and grab it. It doesn't come in and of or within ourselves. It comes from a God who is described as one who is faithful and he is just. He is a faithful and he is a just God. I like this part. It says he is faithful. He is just. He, God, is these things. He is the essence of someone who is faithful and who is just. These are characteristics of his nature. He is endlessly, forever, eternally, both faithful and just. That's who he is. And when we meet these conditions that he has set, if we confess our sin, he is faithful, he is just to forgive and to cleanse. He is, based upon the essence of his nature and his character. He is faithful by meaning God is a faithful God. That word faithful is a huge word. It means he is reliable, he is trustworthy, he is dependable. He will not let you down. He's not a God who agrees, if you do this, I might do that. I will try to do that. I will do that. I will meet my promise. I will step up and be dependable, be reliable. You can have conviction, have confidence, and be certain that if you confess your sin, I will be faithful to do what I have promised that I will do. I will be faithful. But not only that, he says, I will be fair. God is not only faithful, God is fair. And that word we see just, it means that God is a fair God. He is a God who is completely righteous in all of his acts and all of his deeds. He is a God who is a just God. Now you might ask, well, how is God just? And that it was I was the one who sinned, not God. I was the one who committed the infraction. I'm the one who is guilty. I'm the one who violated the law. And so God is just going to just wipe it clean and, and just say, well, you're forgiven just, just to say that because he's promised that? No, it's not just because he promised, but God has provided a righteous provision in order to make him a just God. And in that righteous provi provision, God has provided for us an alternative, a substitute, a sacrifice, and his name is Jesus. It is Jesus. For Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. But in the wage of that sin, Jesus came down, sent by the Father to die on a cruel cross on that altar called Calvary where he took upon himself our sin against God. Those of us who have placed our faith, our trust, our confidence in him, that once we do that, we can be certain that he will forgive based upon what he's done and based upon who he is. As a loving father, we can turn to him. We can run to him, not run from him, but run to him 
And as we run to him, we find the essence of the character of a God who promised, if you confess, I will be faithful because I have already provided a sacrifice in my son Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, one who was perfect, took upon himself your imperfections, died in your place, justifying the demands of the law and justifying the demands that I have. And because of that, you can be forgiven. Well, we met the condition that God has said, and we have confessed our sin. We understand that once we do, we're convicted of the power of the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God, and we can be certain that He will forgive. How complete is this forgiveness? How complete is it? I think sometimes when we come to God and we are convicted and we confess our sin and we know that God is faithful, we know that God is just, that somewhere deep down inside, we wonder, can I be certain? Can it be complete? Is it in totality been washed away? Because sometimes after confession, be honest, we don't feel clean, do we? We don't. And the enemy is sort of, I think sometimes wants to sort of play a trick on our minds and our hearts. That once we confess, we agree with God that his standard is up here. We've not lived up to that standard. We admit specifically those sins that have caused us to fall short of that standard. We have asked for forgiveness. We have abandoned that sin through repentance. And we have sought now in the power of the Spirit, not in the flesh, to overcome that sin. And we walk away from that encounter with God. And Satan then sort of knocks on the door of our hearts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? Really? Is that all it took? Just to agree with God and admit that you have sinned and abandon that sin after you've asked for forgiveness? Is that really all that is required? Surely there's something more. And he comes in and he seeks to, 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 to rob us of our joy of having confessed and been cleansed. How can we know the completeness of the forgiveness of God that it has actually become a reality in our lives? I think Satan likes to keep our sins out in front of us as we're trying to follow Jesus, constantly reminding us how little we are and how frail we are and how many times we have fallen and that we're soon to fall again and that there's no way in the world that you can overcome, that you can be completely forgiven and cleansed from sin. And yet the Bible says to us in this passage and many more, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all of the unrighteousness that we have ever committed. He says if we confess that he understands and wants us to know that we can have complete pardon, completely pardoned, notice, to forgive us our sin. That word forgive means to cast away. It means to dismiss the charge. And the verdict has been rendered now not guilty, forgiven because of the price that Christ paid on the altar of Calvary where he took upon himself that sin that you committed against God and died for that sin. And because now the price has been completely paid by the life, death, and the resurrection of Christ, we can now be completely forgiven. No more debt. It's as if you had never violated the law ever when you have 
walked away from that confession and that encounter with God. Most of us remember that when we came to faith in Christ, I hope you do, that there was a moment in time when you were convicted of your sin and your need for Christ. We've already sort of alluded to that in Romans 3.23, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, the wage of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ our Lord. That if we confess with our mouth Jesus the Lord and believe in our heart that Christ raised him from the dead, we will be saved. According to Romans 10, we will be saved. And upon the moment of our salvation, when we were cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit upon our profession of faith and our confession of our sin and our repentance of our sin, and we turned in repentance and we turned toward Christ, then we were cleansed at our salvation experience. We were cleansed. I think that's one of the main reasons why many say this little prayer that many are asked to pray in many modern churches today, and they leave out the word repentance. Check it out. And the Bible says that without repentance, you can't be saved. We admit that we're sinners and we ask for forgiveness, but without repentance, there is no salvation. We must turn from a life of sin and turn to Christ. And the moment that happens, the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit comes in, and we are forgiven and we are cleansed. All of our past pre-conversion sins are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean. There's no more charges because Jesus died on the cross for that sin. Isn't that great? That's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Once-in-a-lifetime. But the word that is being used here for forgiveness is also a one-time experience. But it's a one-time experience for believers, not unbelievers, because that experience is never repeated. But this, to believers, is a repetitive experience. Because, you see, we, we need to be forgiven on a regular basis. You do. You need to be forgiven on a regular basis. Because you sin every day. That's why you need a bath every day. Amen? Because you, you get dirty. You sin every day. And every day you need to seek His forgiveness. You don't wake up on, on Monday morning and say, Lord, I, I, I forgive me for all my sins for the week and just go on living. You, you ask, you go to the Word, and the Word convicts you of sin, and when it convicts you of sin, you, you confess that sin on a regular basis, and you seek God's forgiveness. You see, the relationship described here is a relationship between a father and a son, or a father and a daughter. We, we don't lose our salvation, but we grieve his heart when we sin. And because when we sin, we grieve his heart, we need to come to him and say, I, I, I agree that your standard was here. I admit that I didn't live up to it. I ask of your forgiveness, and now I abandon that by repenting from it, and I will walk according to your ways. I will live according to your standard. I will obey what you have asked me to do, and I will avoid doing those things that you told me not to do. That's what every parent wants from their children. That's why we set boundaries for our children. To convict, to cleanse and constrain, to guide and to lead. And so we must come as Christians, agreeing with the standard that he set in his word, admitting that we've not lived up to it, asking for forgiveness, and then repenting of that by abandoning that and turning to him on a daily, if not moment-by-moment basis. Each and every time you sin and you are convicted of that sin, there must be immediate and should be immediate confession of that sin. Agreeing? 
Admitting, asking, and abandoning that sin. Affirming your forgiveness by relying upon the Holy Spirit of God. But we need forgiveness. Not only do we need forgiveness, we need cleansing. Because he says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This word unrighteousness means that which is wicked, that which is evil, that which is carnal, that which is selfish, that which is of the flesh, that which is vile. And so because we are Christians still struggling with the flesh, as we saw last few Sundays in our struggle between the spirit and the flesh, sometimes the flesh wins out, doesn't it? And we sin. And when we sin, that brings a stain in our lives. It soils our hearts, so to speak. And we need a moral cleansing. We need cleansing. We need to be pure. We need to be cleansed. We need to be not just forgiven, but wiped clean. That's, that's a one-time experience, as I talked about already, when we become saved. The Holy Spirit of God comes and he cleanses us from all of our past sin. But as we seek now to follow Jesus, we don't live up to his standard. And guess what? We sin. And when we sin, we get stained. We get dirty. We become unclean. We, we grieve the heart of God, and it needs to be confessed so that our relationship with him can be renewed, revived, restored. As somebody mentioned a couple of months ago that I've never seen your truck dirty. Uh, the only one I know who keeps a cleaner truck than me is Mike. And uh, I, I like to come to church on Sunday mornings with a clean truck. I don't know why. And we were on a trip this weekend to a funeral down in the heart of Texas and came back, and I've got bugs all over the front of my, my, my truck and some bugs on my windshield. And I was thinking about coming down here. My truck's not clean. And uh, I, I wash it periodically, and sometimes I wash it by hand, and sometimes when I'm in a hurry, I go through one of those washing things. And uh, I, I like a clean truck, but there's a certain place in town of, of which I'm not going to mention that when I'm in a hurry and I just don't have any other place, I go by there and it cleans my truck, but it doesn't clean it to my standard. You know what I'm talking about? And so when I get it home, I have to wipe it down again after I paid eight bucks to have it cleaned because it's not clean according to my standard. I think sometimes we come to God and we want him to cleanse us and forgive us by our standard, not his. God is saying, I want you clean by my standard. Because my standard is a superior standard. And I wonder if we have settled for a standard less than the standard of God. For the standard of God can only be met by the blood of Jesus. Many modern churches today have gotten away from the blood of Christ. But as we observe the Lord's Supper in a moment, as we're reminded of the blood in the cup where we have the grape juice, not cranberry juice. We are reminded that the blood, the life that was spilt on the cross of Calvary, only that blood can cleanse us from our sin. Let's stand and let's sing this song together. Well, our deacons come forward. Uh, one just, uh, little Johnny was, uh, he had a, one of those uh, um, sand pits in the backyard that his dad made for him. He loved to play with trucks and loaded stuff, and he played a lot in that, and he would get filthy when he would come in and he was called for dinner, and his mom made a habit of every night right before dinner, little Johnny was to take a shower before he could come and eat dinner. He was literally that dirty. 
And on one particular occasion when he was coming in, it was time for supper and to take his shower. He had a debate with his mother about that. Some of you parents don't know what I'm talking about, right? And he put up a pretty good argument as to why he didn't want to do it this time. And he said, Mom, I don't want to take a bath just this one time. She said, Johnny, you and I have talked about it many, many times. You must take a bath. You are so filthy. You are so so dirty. You need to come to the table clean before you can partake with the family. And he said, but Mom, just this once, couldn't you dust me off? I think sometimes we want to be just dusted off rather than having a heart that's been thoroughly cleansed by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit and the cleansing work of the Spirit in us. For he says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus paid it all so that we might be cleansed from our sin. Let's not come to this table today dusted off. Let's seek a thorough cleansing from every sin in our lives so that we not be guilty of sharing in this time together in an unworthy fashion, which in and of itself would be sin. So as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ today, born of the Spirit and baptized in the water of Christ, we invite you to share with us in this time of celebration as we celebrate the greatest news of all, the gospel of Jesus, in this time of the Lord's Supper.